Well, just about a year ago, I was sitting in my office, and sometimes I just kind of surf through some sermons, you know, look up different things I like watching, and you know, conferences, and just hearing, you know, some of those big-name speakers out there, and just being encouraged by it and that sort of thing. And, and so uh, about a year ago, I was in my office, and I pulled up this conference. It was, I don't know who it was for, like, for pastors, missions, I don't know what all it included, but there were some big-name guys there, and there was a lot of, like, just great music, great preaching. It was just incredible. And, and so I was sitting there, and I was watching this, and uh, one of the, the speakers got up and gave this illustration, and I loved it. And I was like, man, we got we to gotta talk about this. And so he got up there, and he asked the question for everyone. He said, are you guys excited to be here today? Are you enjoying being here today? And everybody, I mean, this is a conference with tons of Christians, great worship and everything. And, of course, their response is, yeah, we're excited to be here today. Yeah, you know hooping and hollering and everything else. They're excited to be there today. He's like, oh, that's awesome, you know, so glad. Then he said, is God excited to be here today? Is God enjoying being here with us in our presence, with all of us, you know, in his presence? Is God excited to be here? And everybody's like, yeah, you know, giving it up for God and just and loving it. And, uh, and right after they did that, he, he asked the same, second, uh, the same question for the second time. And you guys have sat through enough sermons when the pastor asked, the same question the second time, it always makes you like be a little more cautious in how you answer it, a little more hesitant. And so uh, it was Francis Chan who was saying this. He said, are you guys excited to be here today? And the second time, everybody's like, like, I think we should be, but I'm not quite sure exactly whether we should be excited or that God's excited to be here today or not. I'm not sure what's going on here. So there was a little more hesitancy. And, uh, and this is when it really clenched my heart when I was listening to this opener. It's because Francis Chan said, because when we ask that question, if God is excited and happy and enjoying being here today, it's like I look in Scripture, I see a lot of times and a lot of examples where he's not. When you look through Scripture, you come across a lot of churches, like in Revelations. You know, and there's one in particular that you know, God said, uh, you know, you, you, your hearts are far from me, and I, I want to spew you. I want to spit you, and some versions of Scripture actually say, I want to vomit you out of my mouth. And I was like, wow, that's harsh. And then, you know, looking back, uh, you know, to the Old Testament even, God's people and, and uh, you know, in the temple, they're in the book of Malachi. It opens up in chapter 1, I think it's verse 10, and God's talking to his people and he says to them, he is like, oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. For you say that, uh, so he says, I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will accept no offering from your hands. Those are pretty strong statements that God has given to his people. Spew you out of my mouth. I wish you would just close the doors to the temple. That would actually honor me more than what you're doing inside the temple itself. Wow. But this is where it really like gripped me because Francis Chan, he's like, I can't, he said this, he's like, I can't help but think that there are people, masses of people, lots of people coming to the temple or into that church in Laodicea that they were people there, and they were bringing their offerings, they were bringing their worship, they were bringing their prayer, they were talking about God, they were doing all sorts of different things. And he was like, I can't help but think that all the people at these places, whether in the temple or in the church, thought 
they were pleasing to God. That scare you just a wee bit? Just a little bit? Weeks later, I mean, again, this was last year, about this time of year, just weeks later, God quite literally shut the doors of just about every church in America and around the globe. And I was like, that's weird. What is God doing? You know, what? this is not an accident. Nothing happens is, is beyond God's sovereignty. This is no accident. What is God doing? It makes us step back, even a, almost a year later here, and say, what is God doing? Now, I want to be really cautious as I share with you today because I don't want you to think that I am trying to be a spokesman for God and saying that this is God being unhappy with all of you and his judgment and wrath is being poured out on sinners. And it's like, I, I don't feel like that's my position <laughs> to share with you today, you know, and, and to do that. That's not what I'm, I'm trying to convey. It's not like I have figured it all out. That's, I'm not trying to tell you why COVID's here, why the doors to the, all the churches have been closed and many continue to, to be closed. I'm not trying to do any of that. But what I am trying to do is be a spokesman for God's word when it says to us very clearly that it is folly for us to think when God's discipline and correction and even judgment comes, that we think that is for everyone else. That we think it's, we blame that, we chalk it up to that's because of all those sinners out there that God's trying to get their attention. He's trying to capture their hearts and their affections and not our own. About the same time uh, last year, just after COVID kind of hit, John Piper came out with a book, and it's called, uh, it's called Coronavirus and Christ. And that, it's kind of funny because John Piper, he's a very prolific author. It's, it's like two days after COVID you know, hit, and he's already got a book out. He's, like more, he's, got, a, he's got a book that comes out like more often than like Dollar General stores going up. You know, it's just like always there's a, a new one coming out here. But there was this chapter in this book as I was reading through it, and it was talking about how Jesus responded to disasters. And there was two disasters that people came up and asked Jesus about in his day and time. Two things that people were looking at that kind of shook them and made them really worried and concerned. The first one was that Pilate had gone in and had his people, had his men, slaughter worshipers inside the temple. And it was just like that shook their world. That rattled them, understandably so. That was a big deal. So that happened. And then also there was this tower. This big tower had collapsed, fallen, and it had crushed and killed 18 people. And so understandably, these people came to Jesus, this teacher, this man full of wisdom, and they asked him the same question that we are asking today. It's like, why? Why is this going on? What, what's up with this? But how they asked the question is very telling because they, they asked it this way. They're like, is it because of their sin that they die this way, that this happened to them? Is this because of their sin that this judgment was pronounced on them? And Jesus' response is incredible. He says to them, he says, no, those who were murdered by Pilate and those who were crushed under, under the tower were no worse sinners than you. You see what Jesus did there? Their arms were going like this, trying to blame the bad things that happened in the world on those sinners. And Jesus took them by the elbow, 
slapped it around, and got them to look at themselves a little bit. It's like their sins was no worse than you, than your sins. This judgment could just have easily have befallen you and come upon you. And so it's easy as, uh, for us as Christians to point the finger everywhere else except here and at me and at us. And I think this season of COVID is a great opportunity, an opportunity for us as Christians to point the finger at us and ask the hard question of, God, is this for us? Are you trying to get our attention? Do you enjoy our worship? Do you enjoy our offerings? Do you want to be here? Do you enjoy your church, your bride? God, is that what you enjoy? Now the question comes up, it kind of begs it. It's like, how, you know, why, why would God possibly not enjoy being here with us? And I was sitting in my office, and I was contemplating that question, and, you know, and sitting in my office, I kind of have all kinds of crazy thoughts sometimes, but one of them, I was like, I wonder what the statistics are in Scripture about the number of churches that there were that pleased God and the number that didn't. You know, it's like, I wonder if we can do some statistical analysis of the book of Revelation. Just so you know, this was just me having fun, and I'm not saying this is like, this is an errant, like, take it to the bank kind of stuff. It's just me being crazy. So I'm sitting there, and I'm like, okay, so in the book of Revelations, there's seven churches. Five of them God was clearly not pleased with, and two of them uh, were pretty good. So uh, five, five divided by seven was 70%. I was like, okay, we got a 70% chance based on just the books in Revelation that God probably isn't going to be happy with us. But then I kept on thinking, I was like, well, the two churches that God was happy with, they were extremely poor, and they were suffering some degree of moderate to severe persecution. We don't fit in that category at all. So I was like, that probably got, has to like push our percentage up a little bit. So we're probably like 75%, you know, 80% kind of range now. And I was like, but then the one, the one church that God had nothing good to say at all, and it's like the worst church out of them all, Church of Laodicea, that church was the wealthiest church. They had need of nothing. And, and I was like, oh, wow, that's probably, we've probably fit in that category a little bit better. And so, you know, uh, you know, we're wealthy. We don't really have a whole lot of need. You might not think you're wealthy, but compared to all the other churches in the world, we are filthy rich. So it's like we fit in that category a little bit better. And so, I, you know, I see our chances, our odds going up a little bit better that we might not be as bringing as much pleasure to God as we think we are. And I know that's just kind of silly. I'm not, again, I'm not trying to tell you to take that to, to the bank. But, you know, I am saying that we've got to start looking. We've got to start looking and say, why are we pleasing? Why do we think we're any different from all these churches that God's talking to? The church in Galatia, where Paul says, I mean, Paul went in and he established this church. He was an apostle, an actual apostle of God who established this church. He leaves for a few years and he writes this letter and says to the church of Galatia, who has bewitched you? He writes the letter to the Corinthians and says, why are there divisions among you? Why are you suing each other? Why are you proud of your immorality? Why do you have bad theology? And good grief, people, you're getting drunk in communion? Honestly, you see some problems there? In the church of Ephesus, he's like, you're, you've lost your first love, people. Church of Philippi, he says, everyone's looking out for their own interests and not for the interest of Jesus Christ. And he says, you're preaching Christ out of selfish ambition. You know, it makes us take a look at ourselves, doesn't it? And I'm like, yeah, we, 
We do a lot of good things. I'm not, I'm not trying to like be judgmental and say there's nothing good about us at all. I mean, we've got, we support 20 missionaries, right? We have Bible studies. We have men's ministry, women's ministry. We've got CBC Squared Youth Group. We've got a prayer meeting that John Paternoster is leading. We've got all kinds of good things, and I don't want to demean those. But what I do want us to think, of, think about this morning is why do we think we're any different from these churches? that God expressed some displeasure with and saying, you're not where I want you to be. And this is, I think, part of the problem is it's easy to assume that we are different from these churches in Scripture that God expresses displeasure with. It's easy to assume that, but I want to know. I want to know. When Francis Chan asked that question, is God excited to be here today? I don't want to assume I want to know, is God excited? Does God enjoy being here with us today? And that's the difficulty is how can we, how can we gauge that? How can we gauge whether God is pleased or not? Now, going back to those two questions that Francis Chan asked, are you excited to be here today? Do you enjoy being here? And then he asked the second question, does God enjoy? Is he excited about being here? The problem is we tend to ask and answer those questions in that order. We ask and answer them in that order. Are you excited to be here today? Yeah! Is God excited to be here today? And this is the problem. If we answered the first question positively, what are we, how are we going to answer the second question? Positively. If we answered the first question negatively, how are we going to answer the second question? All the time. You know, you ask people like, hey, how was the sermon today? Uh, it was okay. It's all right. Who do you think answered that question? Them or God? People, you know, when you ask, hey, how's the worship today? Ah, oh, it's okay. They sang some songs you know, I didn't really like or care for. Who's answering that question? about who's judging the goodness of the sermon and of the worship. Is it God or is it us? You see what I'm getting at? See what I'm stepping in? There's a problem. There's a problem. We mistake our pleasure for God's pleasure. And we assume that if we are pleased, that God should also be pleased. And I want us to know that this is considered idolatry. When we project our feelings and our emotions and even our judgment onto God, it is called idolatry. And Scripture specifically states this and says it is the sin of presumption. It is the sin of presumption. Uh, There's a passage in 1 Samuel chapter 15 that I'm going to tell you about here in just a second. And it talks about the sin of presumption. But I want to give you some context Uh, to it first. So Samuel was a prophet of God. He anointed the first king of Israel, and his name was Saul. And Saul was a newly appointed king, who has been newly crowned, and God had given him a mission. He said, Saul, God told Saul this. He's like, I want you to go, and I want you to go and, and fight this evil nation over here. And I want you to wipe them out. I don't want you to keep any of their possessions. I don't want you to keep any of their livestock. I don't want you to keep anything. No, no loot, no bounty, no, you just, you destroy it all, Saul. Don't bring anything home. That's what I want you to do. And so Saul went out. 
He fought this evil nation, and God gave him victory, and he's returning home, and Saul and God both heard some sounds, the sounds of sheep, the sounds of cows and livestock. And Saul comes out. I'm sorry, Samuel, the prophet Samuel comes out to confront Saul. He's like, Saul, what is this? What is this that I'm hearing? All these sounds of these animals when God has said, you know, I don't want you to bring anything back. I want you to destroy it all. And yet here are all these animals that you're bringing back with you. And you know what Saul's reply was to, to uh, Samuel? He said, oh, oh, don't worry, Samuel. <laughs> I got this all figured out because these aren't just any you know, sheep. These are the best sheep. These are the best livestock. They are, they are the, the, the cream of the crop, and I brought them back. And you want to you know why I brought these back, Samuel? I brought these back to offer them to God. I'm going to sacrifice and offer these to God. And as I'm reading this, if I, if I stopped in the story right there, i got to tell you that reading that and hearing Saul say, these are for God, I'm bringing them as an offering and sacrifice, I think my heart would have been like, Good on you, Saul. Yeah. Way to represent bringing some offerings and sacrifices to God. Yeah, I would have been like, yeah, your heart is where it needs to be. You're, you're trying to glorify and honor God the best way you know how. Oh, you, you go. You know, you're trying, man. You're doing well. What would you say? How would you judge Saul in that situation? You know it's a trick question, don't you? Because I'm asking it. Let's see what's, what Samuel said. In Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 15, verses 22 through 24, Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion as, is as the sin of div, uh, divination. Here's a little parent tidbit. Rebellion is not an acceptable stage of your children's upbringing. Rebellion is as the sin of divination. And get this next sentence. It says, presumption is as iniquity, sin, and idolatry. Presumption is as sin and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord... He has also rejected you from being king. The price of presumption is high. Saul presumed that God should be pleased. He presumed that bringing this gift to God was enough. And as we're celebrating Valentine's Day today, we all know that bringing a gift to your loved one is not enough to tell them that you love them. I know this because if all I do is bring Eunice flowers and I never wash the dishes, she will not think that I love her. And honestly, she'd probably be right. There's such thing as empty gifts, meaningless gifts. It's interesting that in Scripture, you know, we associate idolatry with the first sin of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. When they, it was a question of who we worship, they tried to worship them. They wanted to be as gods. That is clearly idolatry. But have you ever thought about how we worship God can also be idolatrous? The second recorded uh, sin in Scripture we know is, is Cain and Abel. 
you remember that story in Genesis chapter 4? It's interesting because we have two men, two brothers, who are bringing gifts to honor God. And Scripture labels them with the exact same term. We don't see really essentially any difference between these two gifts that Cain and Abel are bringing. And theologians for years have tried to decide, you are like, why is it that God uh, deemed Abel's gift to him as good and accepted it and received it? And why didn't God receive uh, Cain's gift that he brought to him? What was wrong with it? What was going on there? And there's a couple of assumptions, and we're kind of reading to a t- a, the text a little bit and making assumptions. But one of the theories is that when Cain brought his Uh, I'm sorry, when Abel brought his gift, it says he brought the firstborn, the first fruits of his livestock because he raised animals, and he brought the first. And over here, people say, well, that's why God didn't accept Cain's is because he didn't bring the first fruit, the first uh, fruits of the ground that, because he was a farmer, he was raising crops and things, and that's why. But Scripture never tells us that Cain did not bring the first fruit, the first and the best of what he had to offer. And so that doesn't seem to be a likely option. The other thing that sometimes theologians will look at and say, well, over here, Abel had a blood sacrifice. And that's good because, you know, God was using this as an example to show us that Jesus was coming, was going to be our blood sacrifice one day, and it was going to project to that. Problem is, is what Abel brought was not a blood sacrifice. What he brought was the fatty portions of, of, of his animals, and he brought those to God, and that was an acceptable offering. And it says that Cain, he brought what he brought with, uh, with his, the fruit of the ground was also an acceptable offering to God. Uh, even though Levitical law wasn't around yet, by Levitical law, both of their offerings were acceptable offerings to God. And so we're still faced with the same question, why did God receive Abel's offering and accept it and enjoy that, and why did he not receive and accept Cain's? That's kind of at the core of what we want to get at. Why did God do this? Why did he do this? And I think 1 Samuel 15 tells us a little bit about why, and I'm going to read a few different scriptures. I want you to start connecting some dots. 1 Samuel 15, 22, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as obeying the voice of the Lord? Maybe Cain had a problem with obeying the voice of the Lord. Psalm 51, 16 through 17 says, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O Lord, you will not despise. What was Cain's heart when he was bringing those offerings and sacrifices to God? Proverbs 21.3 says, To do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. Was Cain being righteous and just? Matthew 12.7 says, And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. This is what Jesus said. He says, You would not have condemned the guiltless. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Was Cain being merciful when he brought his gift to the Lord? Matthew 5.24 might be one of the most telling because Jesus commands us, leave your gift. Leave your gift there. Don't even bring your gift. Leave it where you are at. Don't even bring it to me. But first, go and be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. 
Do you think Cain might have had some brother issues going on in this story a little bit as he was bringing his offering? Maybe. See, not only who we worship matters, but how we worship matters. Showing up is not good enough. Bringing nice gifts is not good enough. Let me ask you this question. What is our church known for? Is it known for, you know, good music? We've had some great programs through the year, great music. Is that what we're known for? Are we known for, you know, having some great preaching? Pastor Tom, for all these years, great preaching. He's been bringing God's word to us faithfully. You know, we've got great programs. We've got all these kind of things, but when it comes down to it, is that good enough for us to assume that we have God's pleasure? See, the real question, a question that I think pleases God, is are we known for our holiness? Are we known for our purity, for our obedience to his word, for our humility, for our mercy, for our righteousness, for our justice, for our love? And this is the hard truth. If not, all the rest that we bring to him are just empty offerings and sacrifices. They're empty. Now, you might be seeing, you know, thinking in your mind, Pastor John, you're kind of coming down a little bit heavier than we're normally like liking on a Sunday morning. You're kind of pronouncing, you're kind of being judgmental without being judgmental. I'm trying to walk a delicate line here, and I want to tell you why. But you might be struggling a little bit and saying, you know, you're not feeling like this is, this is, you know, fair to even, like, be talking about. Like, why are you coming down so hard on us? It's almost like you enjoy. It's almost like you enjoy talking about God's discipline and judgment and correction. And if you think that, I'm going to say you are absolutely correct. I love talking about God's discipline and judgment and correction. You want me to tell you why? Because Psalm 139, 23 gives us this example. It's King David, and he says, Oh, Lord, search me and know me. Know my heart. Try me. Try me. Try my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me. He's inviting God's discipline and correction and judgment in on his life. And you know why he does that? It's because even though it sounds scary, God's discipline and correction for his children is not punitive. It is not for punishment's sake. It's for the sake of purification. And because of that, we don't have to freak out when we talk about God's discipline and correction and judgment in our lives. We can embrace it the same way that King David did in this psalm. We can be excited about this. 1 Peter 4.17 says this, It is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And I can't tell you how many years I've heard people use that in like, in like a personal, like me condemning you or us condemning each other kind of way. But this is something that we have to look at and say, this is our heavenly father saying that, guys, you aren't where you need to be. I think we can all agree to that. And there are some problems that we need to address. We need to agree with that. And we not need to stop freaking out about that and seeing it as this bad, like scary kind of thing and respond to it because it's a loving heavenly father who's trying to engage with us and create in us a pure heart. That's what David is, is praying for. Create in me a pure heart, oh God. So God's discipline, correction, and testing, and yes, even his judgment is good. And that is something that we can smile about when we talk about. 
We can smile about it. Listen to some of these passages about God's discipline. Proverbs 3.12 says that God disciplines those he loves. The problem is, is when he stops disciplining us. That's when we need to be worried. Because like in Romans 1, it talks about when, when people were sinning, 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 what did God finally do? He's like, I gave them over to the, the passions and the lusts of their heart. And that is the worst thing that a loving Heavenly Father could do to us, His children. Good Father disciplines those He loves. Hebrews 12, 11 says this, For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. It yields a harvest of righteousness. Is that what you want in your life? Do you want a harvest of righteousness in your life? Then you will embrace God's loving correction and discipline and judgment on you. That sounds crazy. It sounds counterintuitive a little bit, but that's, that's the truth of it. We shouldn't be running from this. We should be running towards it. You know, I was thinking about when I was disciplined as a little child, my parents used to spank us. And, uh, you know, and kind of our response to that, when my dad came home and I knew he was going to be spanking me, uh, my response generally was to go, and I found, I don't know where we came up with this idea, but we'd go get some of our books, and we'd stick them down the back of our pants. And we thought that would help, like, alleviate some of the spanking, you know, issues and stuff. Did anyone else do that? It was just us. Maybe it's a Southern thing. So anyways, I, like a parent wouldn't notice, like, a square rear end on their kids or something. You know, it was a really crazy idea. But we were doing whatever we could to soften, to lessen that discipline that our parents were bringing on us. And I think the, the mentality when we did that, it reflected that we had, like, we had an issue. We weren't submitting to that correction and discipline. We weren't trying to figure out what we did wrong and how we could change that. We were just spending all of our time and our effort trying to lessen the severity of the pain and the discomfort that it caused. And here in the scripture, God's saying, don't run away from it, run towards it, because it will help you reap a harvest of righteousness. How amazing would it be for us as parents? You know, I was thinking about this with my kids. You know, when, when I need to discipline them, usually I'm like, hey, you know, Janelle, come here. And she knows she's in trouble because she's been screaming and yelling and doing whatever else she's doing. I'm in the kitchen. She's in the living room. And I tell you what, I never knew that you could walk so slow. It, like any other time of the day, it would take her like two seconds to get from the living room to the kitchen. And yet when she knows she's in trouble, it takes her like 10 minutes She's like crawling on her hands and knees, you know, into, into the kitchen. I was like, how amazing would that be as a parent? If I'm like, hey, Janelle, and for her to come directly to me. What if, whoa, that would be incredible. That would be amazing. But what would that communicate? As a parent, what would that say about our child and our children and our relationship with them and how they understand discipline and the role that it has to play? And that there is something good to be had on the other side of discipline that they will never have if discipline does not take place. The harvest of righteousness is not taking place in the living room. It's taking place in the kitchen. When my child comes to me and receives that discipline in their life, that's where that happens. Another passage is in James 1-2. says, count it all joy 
my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and steadfastness has its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete and lacking nothing. When God is, he's testing us, whether he's, you know, he's, he's, uh, you know, coming into our life and convicting of us different things and, and judging us, saying this isn't where you need to be, what the ultimate place he's trying to get us to is a place of purification. I love this next verse too, Proverbs 12.1. Actually, before I get there, I want to just reemphasize that we got to stop seeing God's judgment as a bad, somber, funeral, dirge kind of like day. We've got to stop seeing it like that. It could become that. Discipline is only bad when we don't respond to it appropriately. That is when God's judgment and discipline and correction takes on a whole negative nuance that we don't want to go to. Only when we disregard it. All the more reason for us to embrace that as life itself, as taking that first breath when you're coming up out of the water drowning, just breathing in that life. That is what God's discipline and correction and judgment is meant to bring in his children's lives, those who love him. Proverbs 12.1 says this. It says, whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is, try to fill in the blank in your own head. What would God say? He who hates reproof is stupid. I think it's funny that stupid's in the Bible. He who hates reproof is stupid. Now, we're all tired of COVID, and I get it. We all want it to be over. We all want to be done with it. But part of me is wondering if God is waiting for us, his church, to embrace his good and his loving discipline and correction in our lives. And the hard thing is, is as I was like preparing this, it's like I so wanted to say, and this is what you need to fix, and this is what you need to fix, and this is what's wrong, and this is what, you know, it's like, as a pastor, it's kind of like a, you know, that's not my role. Sometimes it might be a little bit. But I think, I don't want to be judgmental with this, because that's not, I think that's God's role in our lives, ultimately. What I want to challenge you with for the application is for you just to stop and say, God, is this for me? When you look at those two questions, have you been answering the questions in the right order? Have you been saying, am I excited? Do I enjoy this? And then projecting that onto God? Or is it time that you flip-flop those? And the first question you ask in everything that you do, everything that you read, everything that you see, that you're part of, and you say, are you saying, God, does this bring you honor and the glory? Do you enjoy being here? Are you excited with this? And then let that project onto your affections and your loves and, and letting that answer be the answer for the second question of, am I excited to be here? Do I enjoy being part of this? And guys, as you ask those questions in that order with that heart, I have no doubt that God will lay things on your heart about things that we need to be purified in, that he might want to correct us in. And then the most loving thing that our Heavenly Father can do is call us to repentance. It's funny that we run away from that. It's funny. Repentance is the, one of the most loving things that God has called us to do. Because Scripture tells us that 
God disciplines those he loves. He tells us it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. And then he gives us the promise that when we come to him and ask for forgiveness in that heart of humility and we repent, what does he promise? He promises to forgive us. Is there any reason for us not to embrace God's discipline and correction in our lives? Is there any reason at all? 